So our reading is found in 1 Samuel chapter 2, the verses are 11 to 26, and that's on page 272 of our Bibles. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was a practice of the priests that, whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first, and then take whatever you want. The servant would, say, would answer, No, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the, for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. And the boy Samuel continued to, <clears throat> continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with the people. Please keep your Bibles open. Thank you, George and Dorothy, for reading so brilliantly. 
Uh, we're going to be looking at that story after we look at it. There'll be a chance to ask questions or say anything you like, really, uh, because it's lovely to have a little group in which we can talk like that. And while we're doing that, then Debbie and the children will be learning the same passage, and they'll come and tell us what they've learnt after we've finished. So let's start by asking a simple question. Uh, what kind of scandal involving church leaders would shock you? Now, you might be bomb-proof by now. You've read too many headlines to be shocked anymore. But what would you say to the man in Rothwell Road who uh, spoke to us and said how his priest in his church had run away with uh, someone in the congregation and all the congregation's money? And as a result, that man said he was never going to trust God again. He was shocked. But tonight's bit of the Bible is going to help us as we think through conversations like that on our doorsteps. But I'm hoping it will help us even more. Because we tend to see the headlines even more regularly than the man on the street. And yet I want us at the end to finish up with more confidence in God than we did at the start. So we're going to look at three things today. The first thing is how to be genuinely shocked. It is an important thing that we are shocked when there are bad leaders. The second thing we're going to learn is that God always provides a good leader. And we look at that as well. But then thirdly, we're going to see how God is really right to judge those who lead his people badly. We'll see those things in turn. First, the shock of bad church leaders. Because honestly, we are meant to be shocked when we read a bit like this in the Bible. After all, look at verse 12. It's a shocking thing. With shocking words. Eli's sons were scoundrels. Don't get language like that normally in the Bible. And the fact is that it's two clergymen that are scoundrels. The fact that they are clergymen can be seen in chapter 1 verse 3 where you read that Eli and Hophni were priests of the Lord. And yet, in verse 12, if you come back to chapter 2, you see they had no regard for the Lord. As a priest, they were allowed to have a bit of the sacrifices after a certain point. But these two guys grabbed too much too early. And in verse 22, you see they slept around as well and were meant to be shocked. The trouble with their dad, who spoke to them a bit, was that he wasn't shocked enough and he let it carry on. In verse 29, we're told that the dad, by implication, still honoured his sons. He wasn't that shocked. And the Bible wants us to be different to that, to be deeply shocked when things like this happen. And we should be uh, deeply shocked and not really 
blase about what happens, but to be traumatized by what happens. Because these three men, uh, you might say there are three things that could be said about them. First, they are unconverted. If you were here last week, uh, you heard, you've heard Hannah say in verse 3 uh, that uh, there are people whose mouths speak uh, such arrogance, but God knows what's going on. And by him, deeds are weighed. Now, the interesting thing is it turns out that she's right, but the examples of the people she's talking about are not to be found amongst, if you like, the Philistines, the classic group of people who were against God's people. They were the ones speaking proudly, but she's her first um, proof of uh, what she's saying is right doesn't come from them, doesn't come from pagans around her, it comes from the priests that are around her. And we have a problem for Houston when priests act like pagans. Now look, they're not getting anybody to worship false gods, they're not getting anybody to bend their Bibles, Abigail. Um, uh, what they are doing uh, is... Um, do you want to go sit next to your dad? You're going to have to sit next to him. Uh, what they're doing is not uh, to uh, bend their Bibles or to go off after false gods. Uh, what they're doing is simply feeding their own appetites in areas where God has said they shouldn't. And when it's pointed out to them in verse 23 by their dad, you see at the end of verse 25 that they don't listen. Uh, uh, his sons did not listen to their father's rebuke. So, they are unconverted. They're acting as pagans, even though they're priests. Secondly, they are ungrateful. Now, we're going to see a bit more of that later, but God had been really good to these guys. Not having to buy their meats was actually one of the perks of their jobs. And we'll see next week that they were married, so they didn't need to sleep with other women. They'd be treated really well. And the mark of any one of God's people is actually they should be more grateful than anybody else on earth. And if that's true of any of God's people, it should be especially true of God's leaders. They should be enormously grateful to this God who they serve. And if these men, privileged position as they had, are still pretty ungrateful to the God who gave them all that. Third thing is that they are not corrected. Now it's true that Eli had words with them in verse 23. But then a man of God comes to them. We haven't read this section, but you can see in verse 27 how a man of God comes to Eli and says, as I pointed out before in verse 29, that he is still honoring his sons when they wouldn't listen to him. Because, let's face it, at the end of the day, they still have their jobs, don't they? Verbal warnings are only genuine if you take action if those verbal warnings are ignored. Eli doesn't. He's happy to see the action carry on. And that's the most shocking thing of all. That the man in charge continues to let it happen. So when this man of God comes 
and says how God is going to put a stop to all that with an act of judgment, it's Eli who's the one that he's speaking to. He's the one who's the chief culprit. Now, that's worth thinking about because Eli himself hadn't done what his sons had done. He was actually a good man. His heart's in the right place. He wants to listen to God. We'll see that next week as well. And he genuinely doesn't want his boys to be doing what they're doing. He has a word with them. Tells them to stop. And he's bringing up Samuel to serve the Lord. If you look at chapter 2 verse 11. His ministry before the Lord under Eli the priest. Look here he's a good man. But all that's going to be lost in verses 31 and 32. The time is coming when I will cut your strength. And the strength of your priestly house no one in it will reach old age and you will see distress because he was unwilling to step in and he let his sons carry on in office. He was the bad leader who gets challenged for doing that. Now, it's hard for us who are linked to the older denominations we come from the Church of England, not to see the parallels between Eli and, say, the bishops of the Church of England. Many of them are good men. Many of them believe what we believe. Many of them would rather some of the things that are going on didn't go on. It's just that no one steps in to stop it. No one takes action to remove those who live pleasing their appetites rather than obeying the word of God. And God won't let a system like that carry on. We know that from 1 Samuel chapter 2. And it's the bad leadership of good men that's especially shocking. You'd expect Hophni and Phinehas to be in the church. But it's when people don't step in and remove them. That's when you've got bad leadership at its worst. And we ought to be shocked by that. Not that there are bad guys. We'd expect that. But the biggest shock is that the good guys let it carry on in the way that Eli did. And that's a mirror to our situation today. The shock of bad leaders. Secondly, there's the provision of a good leader. The Bible is brilliant. You can see the way the words are written in this chapter. The point is made just as you read and you heard Dorothy and um, George read, you understand they are constantly seeing a glimpse of somebody different. Do you notice that? As they were reading one after the other. And so therefore you get this little sandwich, don't you? You get... Samuel mentioned in verse 11 that he's growing up there. He's just arrived. And then you get verses 12 to 17 about the scoundrels. And then you get verse 18, the other side of the sandwich. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord. You get another sandwich like that in verse 21. Uh, and you hear how the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. And then you get verses 22-25 that tell you about Eli having a go at his sons, them not listening. And then you get uh, verse 26 
and the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature in favor with the Lord and all people. Can you see how the, the Bible itself is uh, saying, look, uh, there is someone else on the scene. And in between the bad leadership, you've got the bit of the Bible whispering to you all the time, don't forget Samuel. Don't forget Samuel. Samuel's here. And you get that coming through all the time. And it is amazing to have confidence in a God who has somebody in place even before the problem reaches its peak. So if you go back right to start the Bible, you will find that uh, God has uh, a leader called Moses. And before Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, starts getting really cruel, you've got a Moses growing up in the palace under his nose, waiting one day to take God's people out of slavery. And you see that also in the time of Jesus, where there are bad teachers all along, and yet constantly, if you look at the Gospels, you will hear about the person uh, who is different and is there all the time. And you might say, how does that work out today? But actually, in a way, you see that today in our own situation, our last Monday, a number of us were at Joe Edwards' special little service of welcome in Dagenham Parish Church. Now, it is interesting, isn't it? Even before that vacancy came on the market for him to do that job, Joe was being trained and equipped and made ready for that particular slot at this particular time. God has his leaders. I suppose you could almost stretch that and say it applies to marriage as well. Before you realized you needed a husband or a wife, uh, they're growing up somewhere else in the world, in my case, was somebody that would ultimately uh, fill that need. But that might be going towards the flippant end of uh, the story. What we're really talking is about church leadership and actually any kind of leadership. Wherever you find it is bad and it is rotten, like you do in this chapter, it is worth remembering and letting the Bible keep whispering to you, don't forget Jesus, don't forget Jesus. Uh, the future is going to be his. These men that you read, read about that are filling the screen now, uh, they won't be filling the screen much beyond chapter 4. And they're going to be gone very soon. The person who's reading, who's, who we're reading about in every other little verse, he's going to be the man who gives the name to this book. Remember Samuel, because he is a little foretaste of Jesus. The answer, ultimately, to bad leadership in the church. And then thirdly, we want to look at the rightness of God's judgment. Now, it is really scary to read about how God judge, judges people because it's always got to do with death. And the amazing thing about this particular ending 
is that it's going to be death on the same day. In other words, there is going to be a day of judgment, and both these men, in verse 24, are going to die on the same day. And we know already, at the end of verse 25, that it was God's will to put them to death. That is going to be judgment. You might want to say, hold on a minute. I thought the God of the Bible was a God of love. This is a God who deals out death. How can that be loving? Well, it's uh, good to see what the Bible says about the God of love in this passage. It tells us, when you look closely, that God has acted in love in verses 27 and verse 28. Look at them closely. The first thing you find out about the God of love in verse 27 is that he revealed himself to Eli and to his family. Now, the only way you reveal yourself to people is because you want to draw them into a relationship with yourself. That's the reason why we go out of the doors. We reveal ourselves to people because we want to draw them into a relationship. God, when he reveals, wants to draw someone to him. What an amazingly kind and uh, gracious thing for God to do. And then in verse 28, uh, God chose, God reveals, God chose in verse 28, that family for special privilege to help others to relate to God rightly. Not only does God draw them into a relationship with himself, but he then gives them the great privilege of drawing other people to help uh, come into relationship with himself. God has given them that too. And then lastly, in verse 28, he also gave them um, the food that they needed. Also in verse 28. So there's going to be no anxiety about food. Are there people in the country? They will have to work hard for it. But these guys had all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. God had given them everything they needed to live on. Now here's our danger when God is kind. And it's a danger because God is kind. The danger is this, that we understand that God is love and then we push the boundaries. And what happens is we push the boundaries by thinking that God will always forgive us. That's what these men did. Remember, their business is to be priests. Their business is to keep banging on about God's forgiveness. Because what a priest did was to teach that an animal would pay for the things that you've done in order that you would be forgiven. So that's what these priests were doing in all their work. They were telling people how God would forgive, how God would forgive, how God would forgive. And that then morphed into them thinking, well, you can sin and sin and sin because God will always forgive you. And therefore it does not matter. You never need to put the brakes on because you just come back to God and he'll forgive. Now, think that way and what happens is we go past the point of no return. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews 10, there will be fireworks if we start thinking like that. And uh, 
Bim generally knows her Bible fairly well. Bim, uh, what does Hebrews chapter 10 verses 26 and 27 say? Perhaps if you could screw your memory and maybe screw your eyes, uh, you might be able to read it out. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only the fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. That's very good. See, I, I, I looked at the thing and I, I just saw Hebrews 10, verses 26 and 27, but uh, uh, you obviously see more there than I have. Uh, it's just amazing, isn't it, that if we go beyond a certain point, then in the end there remains nothing but judgment for the person who thinks God will always forgive. That's why verse 25 tells us that these guys had passed that certain point and therefore they weren't going to be given further opportunity. It was God's will to put them to death. The Bible sometimes calls that predestination. And we might just quibble with that and say, so does that mean that God is going to fix it, that some people will die? And... You could spend a whole evening arguing on that one if you wanted, but what the Bible generally wants us to do with predestination, if you call it that, is rather than argue, start trembling. And then, start listening. Because that's the point at which we discover the God who brings us back under the protection of his love. But predestination is actually what the Bible tells us as a good thing because it tells us by the time we get to the end of chapter 2 and especially if you look at verse 25 that it means that God will reveal his love but through another channel. And in verse 35, we realize, I will raise up myself a faithful priest. I will do it. This is God's intention. This is, if you like, God's predestined uh, activity. I will raise up myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. And I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed forever. Now, years later we're going to find out that that's Jesus. He's not going to come through the kind of priestly family that let God down like Eli's family did. Jesus comes, if you want to be someone who's technical about the Bible, he comes from a different priestly line. The Bible says the order of Melchizedek. We won't go into that, but it's different to the Jewish priest that you had in the Old Testament. And as a priest, of course Jesus will know better than anybody that God forgives people, but you notice that as a priest he doesn't push past the boundary. In fact, you discover that he will do according to what is in my heart and mind. So yes, he will bring forgiveness, but he'll do it by showing us how important obedience is. And as that forgiveness comes, why? It will even reach 
the family of Eli in verse 36. Then everyone left in your family will come and bow down before him and he will provide for them. So don't think that God's forgiveness is out of reach. But don't think that God's forgiveness means you can go sailing past the boundaries either. No, forgiveness leads to a desire to do whatever is on God's heart and mind. Rather than to say, hey, I've been forgiven. I'll live how I want. See the difference? So what does that mean for us tonight? Well, if you're new to Christian things... It would be a great shame if you've been shocked by bad church leaders that you've read about or experienced yourself, and then you are put off by God as a result. Now, that's to miss the full picture. Now, look, you are right to be shocked. It is important to be shocked. We are never to take the scandal of a church leader the way we would take the scandal of any other leader. It's deeply traumatizing when God's people are led by people uh, who uh, are unlike him. But God has his answer in place. The Bible will want to keep whispering to you, remember Jesus. Don't forget him. Yes, the bad leaders will fill the screen, but they only fill the screen for now. In a short time, they'll go as quickly as these two men that we read about today. And God's perfect servant will fill the screen long after these other men have gone. Fix your eyes on him. Trust God to set his leadership over the world, and especially on Thursday, rather than turn from him when you see bad leadership doing damage. I remember Jesus. Don't forget him. He's the one who's there in the script of the world all the time. And we need to see it there the way we saw Samuel there tonight. But secondly, what happens if you're churchy? Well, I wonder if our danger is this. In some ways, we know more about God's forgiveness than anybody. And isn't it therefore a trap for us to go pushing through the boundary on the grounds that God will forgive. The difficulty with us who understand about God's forgiveness is that we forget about God's fear. But the Bible tells us it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. Now I know the Bible calls these guys scoundrels in verse 12 but literally the words that they use, they call them the sons of Belial. Now, Belial are the brainless ones, the stupid ones, the foolish ones. You get the drift, don't you? Not the wise ones. The wise ones are those who want to think about the fear of God, even more than they want to think about the forgiveness of God. Now, my friends, if you want to be wise, it's not the university you go to. It's the fear of God that you fill your mind with, that will open the door of your life to wisdom. And it's as we open the door to the fear of the Lord 
and understand that properly, that will then begin to marvel at the forgiveness of God that comes to people who let him down and fail him. It is a fear of the Lord that will make the forgiveness of God even brighter. Whereas the forgiveness of God on its own that blitzes out the fear of God in our minds and means that he doesn't apply to us anymore, well, actually that forgiveness is going to be cheap. It won't really be precious to us. It's the fear of the Lord that will make us wise about the brilliance of forgiveness as it makes us wise about the fear of God and his will. But then what if you are a Christian who struggles with times that maybe church leaders have got it wrong in the past and have hurt you? My friend, there is not one person in this room who wouldn't have been affected that way. And the sad truth is that I'm probably the church leader that's probably hurt you more than any other church leader. That's the truth of it. And it's horrible, isn't it? I find myself caught in the spotlight when you see how in verse 16 these men bullied uh, God's people. And I think that's a horrible thing. And I think I would have to plead guilty if I look back on some conversations I've had. But there might be other uh, areas where you've uh, been uh, hurt as well. I want this chapter to restore your confidence in God. And I want you to put your scars, if I could put it like that, in his healing hands, knowing that whenever that happens, God doesn't see and pretend he hasn't seen. He will act. He will bring those leaders to account. He will actually tell the leaders, you got that badly wrong. Perhaps in his goodness he'll give us opportunity to apologize and to even make restitution if we need to. But understand that God's flock is precious to him. And when his leaders, his shepherds, act against the flock, then one day he is going to act in judgment against them. And it is one day. And it all happens in chapter 4. We'll get there two weeks, but we'll see what happens when we do. In the meantime, let's turn to him and uh, pray to him and uh, thank him for raising his confidence in us when sometimes other people can take that confidence away. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your help this evening to raise our confidence in you even when the church seems to be going through its lowest times. We praise you that bad leadership amongst your people is more grievous to you than it is to us. And we thank you that you won't leave us leaderless, but you have already provided someone faithful, the Lord Jesus Christ. So please fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might have wisdom to look for his coming and to walk in his ways. And help our leaders to give us every encouragement 
by their example as well as by their word. And we pray that for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen.